0: This is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Good afternoon, I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company on the programme today. I'm going to introduce you to some very hefty characters, yes? We're getting started on the bracket.
2: How do you talk about junk? He's enormous.
3: This 18-year-old boar is a lightbulb-shaped leviathan of a bear.
1: Some great bear descriptions in your future as we prepare for Fat Bear Week. We are also going to talk about some big issues in agriculture, including traceability and the future of farm workers. And if you struggled to hear me today, maybe that's not about me. But first, Cattle Australia members will vote today on changes to the organisation's constitution. Simply put, the proposed changes will allow members to elect a representative from their region to advocate within the broader organisation. Victoria Ellis asked Cattle Australia Director and the Interim Chief Executive, Adam Coffey, to explain.
4: The proposed changes are fairly simple uh, and the main, I guess the main part relates to the formation of our new uh, regional consultative committee. Uh, and this replaces um, the Policy Advisory Council, which we inherited as part of the um, sort of the restructure process. And the important part here, I guess, is that it's um, reflective, I suppose, of what the the board is in in, in the sense that it's, it's moving to a full democratically elected model, um, where we have and and so part of the um, bylaws that the board amended uh, in relation to the constitutional changes are. Uh, agreeing on and defining and instilling these sub-regions. So with the board elections, we have um, the three main um, RAC regions in Australia. So, so NABRAC, SALRAC and WALRAC over in the West. And that was the basis by which directors were elected to the board. Um, so within with the structure of our new sort of resource uh, regional consultative committee, the RCC, uh, that basically defines sub-regions within those three main rack regions. And so this will allow us to um, basically to run elections uh, in the lead up to our AGM on the 17th, uh, where we will um, subject to the proposed changes being approved, we will be able to announce our new uh, um, RCC, which is basically the engine room of the organisation, right? It's dealing with policy, advocacy, um, engagement with with the, um, within the organisation and outside the organisation. So we see it as a, a pretty, pretty critical cool move to move the organisation forward um, to to a fully democratically elected and influenced model.
5: So
6: it'll be breaking down that those groups so people can elect within those groups and then the, those groups can go on to advocate again so it's just breaking it down for a few more levels
4: yeah that's correct and and so once you're if you're a cattle australian member uh, you'll be identified in one of those sub-regions and you will be able to vote on uh, whether well, you'll be able to nominate and or vote uh, for who are your representatives to that um, regional uh, regional consultative committee yeah
6: how important is this issue to members
4: Uh, I think it's, from what we're hearing, it's pretty important. I mean, what everybody wanted throughout this whole restructure process was uh, A, democratic um, elections and B, I guess, a a streamlined process as a producer like me to have your issues uh, raised at at that national level. So this is is a pretty critical um, piece of the puzzle.
6: What sort of result are you anticipating at this early
7: stage?
4: Oh, look, you know, you never want to anticipate a vote, but I suppose... um, from and again, I always speak as a producer, and and I can't really see any reason why, um, why producers wouldn't wouldn't vote in favour of what we're putting up here. As I said, most of it relates to this regional consultative committee, and the other part in the constitution is really just about tightening up some language where there are a few discrepancies in the constitution that we inherited. Uh, so it's it's really nuts and bolts stuff. Um, and the other the last point is just that there is there will be a full constitutional review next year. Uh, and that was something that was set in place as part of the industry um, as part of the restructure, I guess when cattle Australia was born uh, to have that full constitutional review two years in so that'll be that'll be somewhere where where we can attack i guess any of the other issues that, that members see that need to be addressed in the constitution.
1: Cattle Australia Director and Interim Chief Executive Queensland's Adam Coffey speaking to Victoria Ellis. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour and I'd like to hear from you this afternoon, 0487 993 Does this go some way to addressing concerns, if you have any, around Cattle Australia? What are your views on how the body is working? Has it served the purpose that you had hoped? 0487 993 is the number to send me a text. It's 10 past 12. Now, the Agriculture Minister has dismissed a survey by the National Farmers Federation showing that a majority of farmers think the federal Labor government is harming agriculture. 1,600 farmers took part in the survey from the NFF and consulting group Sefton, which showed 54.3% thought the current government policies were harming agriculture – while 31.2% said the government is doing a good job for farmers. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt disagrees.
8: Oh, look, I'm, I'm certainly conscious that there are some policies uh, that farm groups and, and individual farmers aren't completely thrilled about. But I think if you look at it in totality, uh, under the Albanese government, there's been a range of significant improvements made that benefit farmers each and every day. We've obviously really strengthened our biosecurity protections. Uh, I'm actually speaking to you from Hobart Airport, where I've just inspected their biosecurity arrangements. And of course, you know, touch wood, we've managed to keep out foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease. When a lot of people thought it was inevitable, they'd come here. Um, but, you know, also we've, we've taken real action to try to deliver uh, on the workforce needs of agriculture. Uh, it's not fixed entirely, but we've got more Pacific Island workers than we've ever had in Australia before. We've opened up new trade deals with a range of other countries to export more product. Uh, and of course, we're taking action on sustainability issues too. You know, I know that there's a lot of angst, in particular in the livestock community at the moment, about prices falling, and that is having a real impact on farmers. Uh, but unfortunately, as MLA and Rabobank and a number of others have confirmed, really what we're seeing is the market in operation, and we've got a massive oversupply, uh, particularly of sheep, but also cattle at the moment as well, which is impacting on prices. Uh, but look, we we work as so. Well, do
9: you think we, this as survey as... is more about the politics of the farmers that are being asked, or do do you actually take responsibility for some of those decisions that may be adversely affecting the sector?
8: Oh, look, I I, I certainly wouldn't want to accuse people of engaging in politics. I mean, people are obviously entitled to their views, but I guess what I'm saying is that if you look at the full picture of what's happening with agriculture, there's a range of government actions that have occurred since we came to office that have been for the benefit of the farm sector, and we want to continue that. Uh, I don't think everyone's going to agree all the time on everything, uh, but, you know, I think when we, as I say, when we look at it on the whole, uh, I think that there's a lot of really positive things happening for the sector.
9: And I know you've made some comments on this before, but but in terms of reiterating, a number of agricultural groups have written to you asking you to scrap the live export phase out, saying that is going to adversely affect an industry that's going through a downturn in particular at the moment. Given the state of the sheep industry at the moment, is it something you would consider?
8: No, look, we've been very clear from the beginning that we intend to honour our election commitment. This is obviously something that we went to two elections in a row committing to do, but I've also committed to do it in an orderly considered manner. Um, So there are some groups who want us to phase out this trade immediately, and we've said that won't happen. And very soon I'll be receiving advice from the panel about how we can do it. Uh, but I think, you know, there are still real opportunities for the sheep industry as well, particularly on shore processing. And we see a really bright future for the sheep industry uh, as we make these changes.
1: Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt speaking to Warwick Long. It's 13 past 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour. Send me a text message this afternoon. zero four eight seven double nine three triple two.
2: Tune your mood with the ABC Listen app. Get swept away in a podcast.
1: Some people come
10: to
3: remembering very funny things from surgery.
10: Really?
2: Choose the news that suits you. Call live radio shows.
10: Carl is calling from the ABC Listen app.
11: Hello, can we make it science week again?
2: And find a playlist that moves you. Anytime, anywhere, every day. Life sounds better with the ABC Listen app.
1: Now, it may not be Science Week, Carl, but it is Fat Bear Week, and hot off his win in the junior competition. The first bracket features 806 junior. He's going to be a tough bear to beat. He's up against 428. She's experienced her first year as an independent bear, cut off from her rich mother. She's had to learn how to restart life from the bottom. You're going to meet 428 and 806 before 1 o'clock.
0: The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Traceability. It's a word often used when talking about food production, but what is it exactly? And are the national systems in place to trace food back to its source actually working? Peter Carter recently travelled the world on a Winston Churchill Fellowship to investigate the traceability of food through global supply chains. Karen Hunt asked him if there's any consensus on what traceability actually means.
12: Traceability definitely means different things to different people. Uh, If you're a primary producer, it's probably perceived as regulation and red tape to manage biosecurity and other risks. For retailers and manufacturers, they probably see traceability as something different, maybe an opportunity to connect with customers. And for government, they probably see it as a way to improve public health and safety. So I see traceability as a capability. It's a capability to track and trace produce through the supply chain, not just so that we know where it comes from, but to achieve a whole range of objectives. And it's certainly not just about product identification, which we often hear people talk about. It's it's really knowing more about what the product is where it is, who's responsible for it and some of the supply chain events that occur along the way. It's it's not a well-understood concept but it's becoming increasingly important in Australian agriculture.
3: Australian producers already have some traceability programs in place. I'm thinking of the NLIS for livestock. Does that work?
12: Well, it does. In fact, it's one of the world's best practices really um, and it's evolved over many years and it's really established itself as a, an important system, particularly for managing biosecurity risks. However, there are some fundamental underlying requirements as well. National property identification is a foundation for livestock identification to work. But we know that at the moment we can have multiple properties with the same pick. We could have a five million acre or hectare property with one pick. So those multiple properties don't even need to be adjacent that doesn't really help us uh, in the way that we need for a, an effective biosecurity response so there is work that needs to be done and it's not just about NLAS, it's about national uh, property locations and we need location information to be really useful for farmers as well now we're approaching what might be a few uh, tricky years around bushfire uh, risk management and so if I'm a farmer or a, maybe even an orchard operator, I want my local fire teams to know where the valuable assets are on the property. Improving the way we manage locations has a huge range of benefits.
3: Are you saying that all of these different systems need to be somehow brought online together so that they operate more coherently together?
12: That's been a major thrust of government and industry conversations in recent times. So you might recall, you know, going back to 2018, 19, you know, needles in strawberries in Queensland, you know, that shone a light on the importance of being able to rapidly identify where produce is being sourced. We do need consistent approach across states and territories. uh, And we need a a harmonised national system for property identification.
3: Where does Australia stand on traceability compared to other countries?
12: Australia is setting the pace in many respects. However, we are looking with interest at in what's happening in other parts of the world. India, when I uh, discovered they're doing a remarkable job improving the way, say, farm inputs are managed. When I go and spray blackberries on my place, it frustrates me that you know I've got to take a picture of the front and the back of the label to. Collect the information I need to put into my chemical use logbooks. You know, we need to simplify things. There are other parts of the world we are showing us how that's done. And certainly what's happening in Europe is very important for us to keep an eye on. Recent regulation around deforestation, for example, has direct impact on Australian exporters. If forest area has been clear felled since 2021, I think it is, produce that's coming off those properties will be limited in its ability to access European markets. Australia's got all of the required mechanisms and there's a lot of momentum around traceability, but it, we do need to collaborate, listen to each other and avoid you know inventing wheels here. We need to get on with it because markets are making it clear that it's something that they value.
1: That's 2019 Winston Churchill Fellow Peter Carter speaking to Karen Hunt. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 20 past 12. Now, what's the last skill you learned on YouTube? I know for me, it was learning how to kickstart my 50cc scooter that wouldn't uh, it wouldn't start with the regular ignition. And actually, through that video, I learned that I'd been starting it wrong for about eight months in any case. Have you learned a skill on YouTube? 0487 993 I'd love to know what the uh, the la- 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 latest skill you learned was. But is that now an approach that you might consider taking with your own staff is it time that instead of instruction manuals farm workers who need new skills find are, are taught in different ways charles downey is a nuffield scholar who's interviewed farmers from all over the world about how they find train and look after their workers he says old-fashioned instruction manuals are close to useless for many farm workers
13: the problem with the written word is that it works for some people, but not others. And agriculture generally has a lower educational profile than the general population in Australia. So we're already starting from the wrong spot if we're trying to use a written manual to pass on information. So if you're not using the written
10: word, what are you using? Everybody has a phone in their pocket now. I think video is definitely the way to go. Have you got examples from your farm where you've used videos to teach staff?
13: Yeah, a really good one a few years ago. We popped the track off our 20-tonne excavator and to get it back on is a bit of a challenging exercise which neither the operator on our place or myself had ever had any experience with. So we got up on a hill where we had phone reception and in- typed into YouTube how to put the track back on a 20-ton excavator and sure enough there was a video of it. Uh, it took us a while, but a few hours later we were back and running again. I know from growing up and working with different people in different fields, especially tradies, there's always a knack to something that you're doing with your hands. And you could read every manual in the book, but there'll just be a little trick somewhere that they know something's a a shortcut or make something easier. And if you can see that, then it's
10: much easier to get to the outcome that you're looking for. I suppose some people might say that's obvious and they're doing that sort of thing, but it's not necessarily rolled out in a formal sense, is it, with the way that we're educating people either at schools or universities. Why did that become apparent to you? Was it part of your, your travels and your research for your Nuffield Scholarship?
13: Yeah, there were two conversations with people that really prompted me to think about how we do this. The first was with a UK scholar working for a farm software company. I was talking to her about how we design things to make them easy to use for people. She told me to read a book called The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. And that had a uh, chapter in it about the conceptual or the mental model, which is a representation in our mind of how something works. And following from that, our host who organised our tours in Kansas, the US, used to work in education and he said that education relies on teaching a graduated skill set with each level providing a foundation for the next. And then he went out and said, what do you do every day? What's a level one skill in your business that you have to tell, tell somebody else about? I had to think about what is a level one skill in my business. I'd actually never thought about it before. What does day one look like for a new person? And then
10: I started thinking about our employees and how it all fits together. You've got a fair few employees. Do you want to just outline what sort of business you run in Tasmania?
13: We do. We have a lot of employees, but I don't think anybody is there five days a week. A lot more part-time or casual people, which seems to be a trend in the way people want to work. So we have merino sheep, about 15,000 of those, 350 cattle, some agroforestry, and more recently we planted a vineyard in 2017, which we're expanding this year.
10: With all of those, there's a whole heap of skills, there's a whole heap of different forms of machinery you've either got to learn how to use or fix. Are you finding you're using different educational tools instead of just giving people a manual?
13: Yeah, we're really conscious, depending on who the person we were talking to, about how to provide information, support information. I did have a go a couple of years ago trying to video myself doing some spraying in our vineyard, but when you're on a two point four metre row spacing and you've got fans on both sides plus the gears and steering, it's really challenging to take an accurate video. You need a teenager with you, they're great at it. Uh, my seven year old sorry, nine year old wants me to get a GoPro, so I reckon I'll have to invest in one of those
1: That's Charles Downey, whose family runs farms in Tasmania, and uh, he was speaking there with Richard Hudson. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 24 past 12. If you've learned something recently on YouTube, I'd love to hear about it. 0487 993 We'll be checking in with the Weather Bureau in about 10 minutes' time to get the latest on that warm weather and the fire danger today. And after that, we're going to dip into the world of fishing in particular. We're going to meet someone who's doing some pretty incredible things on the fishing scene. And we may have to have a chat about the birds and the bees when it comes to crocodiles. We'll be doing that before 1 o'clock.
0: On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour.
1: Now, how's your hearing? Do you think it's fine, but everybody gets frustrated with you? Maybe you know that you could probably take it a little bit more seriously, but you just can't quite get across the line to recognise there's a bit of an issue. If you're a farmer or work anywhere in the agriculture industry you need to know that your hearing is going to be a significant challenge. Hearing loss among farmers and agricultural workers is widespread and as this month is Safe Work Month, Hearing Australia is particularly warning young farmers to take care. Principal audiologist Karen Hirschhausen says in some cases it can be a seven-fold increase in risk. We've
3: got some statistics that so it of suggests that around 1.1 million Australians are exposed to hazardous noise in the workplace and we know that that's a little bit higher in the regional areas so younger farmers are around seven times more likely to have hearing loss than the general population of the same age and we've also got some research to indicate that farmers and agricultural workers hearing loss is a lot more widespread so Around 65% of farmers aged between 15 and 75 may have some degree of hearing loss and almost 50% of farmers report tinnitus, which is a, a type of ringing in your ears. Very
6: irritating and, and quite concerning. Is there any idea why amongst that cohort it is particularly high? Is it just simply because of the types of machinery that they're working
3: with? Yes, I believe so. I think it's the type of work um, agricultural workers, manufacturing um, as well is obviously higher risk because of the the level of the noise of the equipment that's often being used. So we really just want to encourage people to take care of their hearing and protect their hearing by using ear masks or earplugs where they can.
6: Now, particularly males, which I I picked up on there, um, and and obviously it may be because there are simply more men working in these industries but are also um, wanting to paint everyone with the same brush here, but that men are perhaps not as good as wanting to make an issue of it or being concerned about their hearing?
3: Yeah, I I mean, research does indicate that, that men are a little bit less likely to talk to their GP about different things or actually go to the doctor Uh, in the first place. So we are encouraging everybody, if they notice any changes to their hearing or they're concerned about their hearing, whether you're male or female, uh, to talk to an audiologist or to talk to their GP about it.
6: As with anything, better to get onto it early because some of this damage might not be able to be reversed?
3: Correct, yeah. So we want to make sure that any damage there, we keep as stable as possible. We don't want to to add to that damage and, and noise exposure is often... Cumulative, So the more exposure we've got to to workplace noise, the worse our hearing can become over time. So if we can get onto it quickly, um, that's going to save our hearing in the long run.
6: And of course, prevention always better than cure, particularly with farmers or ag workers, they may not have a great choice in the types of machinery that they're working with. It is just going to be noisy. That's the nature of the bee. So what are the types of things they could be doing to reduce the impact of that?
3: Yeah, they can certainly be trying to take um, some breaks during the day, giving their um, their ears a little bit of rest time. So every hour or so, take a, a break where you're not in any noise for a period of time. Let your ears reset a little bit. Um, obviously, using any hearing protection where you can and, and using it appropriately. So whether that's earplugs and making sure they're in your ears properly or whether it's um, earmuffs as well. Um, And I believe there are some equipment that can have buffers or um, noise sort of mufflers added to them as well that might help reduce some of that hazardous level of noise. Part of the reason
6: we're talking about this is because it is Work Safety Month and this is certainly a workplace health and safety issue. Is it something that employers are a lot better at taking care of employees in this way these days. I've got a family member who's a retired mill worker. I remember him telling me the story about getting teased back in the day about wanting to wear earplugs. That certainly is a very different story when you go visit a timber mill these days. Are are employers and workplaces getting better at
3: this? Absolutely. Um, There's new legislation as well around um, protecting workers' ears against noise, but also having regular um, hearing checks if you are at in a certain industry and exposed to a certain level of noise and I think machinery is hopefully getting a little bit quieter as well.
1: Karen Hirschhausen, she's the principal audiologist with Hearing Australia. She was speaking with Selina Green. It's half past 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour.
11: Conversations.
1: Spend an hour in
8: the life of someone else. When my vocal
11: valve opens and closes, I've got this little bump there which creates this rattle in the voice,
8: this gravelly sound.
6: Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. He
8: was reaching down the throat with tiny scalpels and scissors that were mounted
12: on things that looked like knitting needles.
8: Hear the latest conversations.
12: Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio.
1: Or anytime on the ABC Listen app in the second bracket for fat bear week that will be voted on tomorrow morning australia time 402 an experienced mother is up against 901 now 901 is pretty determined she's a first-time mother but she did lose a cub this spring so will her determination outweigh see what i did there 402's experience as a fisher you'll find out a bit more about those bears before one o'clock time now though to find out more about the weather in queensland phalem hanafee's on duty at the bureau good day phalem how you doing
14: good afternoon indeed not too bad
1: now there was some uh i guess chance of isolated shower and storm activity yesterday afternoon was there much in it in the end
14: uh, in the end, yesterday, uh, in the past 24 hours, we saw probably the the peak of the showers was up around, mainly just around the Ingham area, so we had falls of up to, uh, I think, near 40 mil recorded, very localized. Everywhere else, you know, generally around that 5 to 10 mark overall, you know, along the more exposed east coast and central coast as well uh, over the last 24 hours. And we've seen some of them showers persist there or across some central and southeastern areas as well with a, a moist onshore breeze but the main focus is the weather system through the interior at the moment and that has uh, significant suddenly change now in across western areas
1: so would we expect to see those temperatures start to ease up
14: yeah yes indeed yeah, already looking at birdsville hit a top of so far it's seen 22 degrees that's down on 39 degrees yesterday so pretty significant change out here well below average from yesterday as well above average as well and that suddenly changes, sweeping now up over most of the 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 far west and northwest as we speak a little bit of filament of cloud with it uh, when you look on the satellite here up over parts of the central interior northwest and that change uh, moving northward it is gusty in nature as well little or nothing in the way of precip in it once you come north or about a uh, long reach as well but further south thicker cloud over the Marino and Wargo. Some storms rumbled on that change earlier. That's a watch point this afternoon that we could see the risk of some afternoon severe thunderstorm activity uh, develop on that change there to parts of particularly the eastern Marino and Wargo and maybe the western Darling Downs as it goes into later this afternoon and evening as well. It is linked to a pretty significant uh, weather system that's moving, moving across uh, the southeastern states at the moment, particularly uh, with the focal point of significant weather across parts of New South Wales and Victoria from this system.
1: Is that likely to maintain that intensity as it starts to affect Queensland?
14: Now, as it moves through, it's mainly the change, it's the, it's the um, gusty conditions ahead of it, which is elevating the fire dangers across parts of the, particularly parts of the uh, central interior and also the southern interior today. Behind that change, we've got a drier southerly airflow uh, still elevated fire dangers behind it, but the watch point is very much in front of it as well. Uh, it'll move through. Now, the focal point of the shower and storm is more more across the south of the state with this system. Little or nothing in the way of moisture further north with that change. But it does spread the risk of shower and storms in across the, the southeastern interior during this evening and then across central and southeastern districts tomorrow. Uh, the risk of severe storms tomorrow is considered... Very low, but still a non-zero risk there for parts of the Wide Bay Burnett and southern Capricornia as uh, that change moves through.
1: You mentioned those fire dangers. I see the rating for the Channel Country is extreme today and that's likely to move south tomorrow? Is that the idea?
14: Indeed, yeah. Now, the Channel Country is probably a li- probably not quite extreme today. It's probably since we've got cooler conditions moved in. But, yeah, still a risk of local extremes there across parts of the Marino and Wargo. Today and also the Western Darling Downs as we get that gusty northwesterlies ahead of that change, and then we see that change rolling through. It's already over. Uh, it's already west in west of Charleville there in the Marino Warrigal, and it's going to move through the rest of the rest of the Marano Warrigal and into the Darling Downs as we go through later this evening and overnight as well. The fire dangers do drop a little behind it but because of the the gusty dry southerlies falling behind it that means you know it still means that fire dangers remain elevated even with the cooler temperatures
1: and as we look to the coast i see that there is a marine wind warning in place
14: yeah indeed ahead of that system particularly in the southeast that's where we see the northerly and ahead of that so we do have strong wind warnings today for the gold coast sunshine coast and modern bay waters as well They'll, they'll ease once that change rolls through tomorrow. So we see a, a southwesterly rolling through. Now we will see probably marine wind warnings become more extensive about the east coast uh, once this system rolls off the east coast, probably from Friday as we get a, a firm ridge building up the coast. And that means, you know, back to a, quite a, a strong southeasterly trade flow and play up along most of the east coast for the weekend.
1: We'll be keeping an eye on those storm warnings for sure. Phelan, thanks for your time on the Country Hour today.
14: My pleasure as always.
1: Phelan who is on duty at the Weather Bureau for you. And yes, you can get the latest storm warnings online at bom.gov.au or head to abc.net.au slash emergency to get all the latest information there. And make sure that you're following along with your local ABC's Facebook page where you can always get the best local information as well. It's 24 to 1.
0: You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Now crocodiles are synonymous with Australia's north and the reptile's traditional mating season is just around the corner. But thunderstorms and the roar of a low-flying Chinook helicopter in the skies above central Queensland appears to have had a bit of a surprising side effect and triggered a passionate croc breeding season months early. Chris Calcino filed this report.
15: John Lever knows a thing or two about crocodiles. He opened Queensland's first croc farm outside Rockhampton in 1981. Now there are more than 3,000 crocs in his watery stable and he can sense when love is in the air.
11: Well, the crocodiles start vocalising to each other. I mean, they don't have a very sophisticated voice box, but they vibrate their windpipe to send messages out through the water. These are heavy vibrations. And quite often, they spell air really loudly.
15: But this year is a little different. He says breeding season has started early, and he thinks the electricity in the water has something to do with the weather.
11: We've had a lovely warm winter. We've actually had a thunderstorm already, which is an aphrodisiac to a crock. It really, really turns them on. And we've had some rain. So they're all the ingredients of a uh, an earlier mating season.
15: But there's something else in the air too. Army choppers. Singapore's army regularly holds training exercises in Shoalwater Bay, about 100 kilometres north of Rockhampton. And the pilots used the crocodile farm as a marker point to change course mid-flight.
11: And a few years ago, we had a big Chinook that came down low because the guys wanted to take some pictures of the crocodiles. And they were hanging out the door of the Chinook taking pictures. And of course, Chinooks have got a big thump, 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 like that. All the crocodiles, all the big males got up and roared and bellowed up at the sky. And then after the helicopters left, they mated like mad.
15: But why would the weather, or the noise of military hardware, have an impact? Dr Cameron Baker is a researcher at Charles Darwin University who specialises in croc behaviour. He says the role of thunderstorms in crocodile mating behaviour is the subject of study. It does seem to be that mating for the Australian crocodiles is related to periods of storm activity and it'll be sort of in the lead up to the wet season approaching. So they're probably using it as a bit of a cue to say, hey, the wet's coming and it's a good time to start mating. So the eggs are ready to be laid at just the right time. But how does he explain the influence of the choppers? So it might be producing a very low frequency sort of thump-thump as it hits the water. And that may just coincidentally be similar to some of the sounds big mouth crocodiles produce to say, hey, this is my turf. So they may be calling back in response. For farmers like John Lever, it means bigger production numbers for crocodile meat and skins. And this year, he's expecting a bumper crop.
11: Yeah, We've got about 50 uh, mature females here on the place. We get over 2,000 eggs every year just off the place here. Uh, out of those 2,000 eggs, we get at least 1,200 babies.
15: And this year isn't a one-off. Australia signed a military training treaty with Singapore in 2020, resulting in up to 14,000 armed forces personnel conducting training in the region for up to 18 weeks a year. Over the coming decades, that could mean a lot more Chinooks to ignite the dormant libido of the cold-blooded suitors.
1: I guess whatever gets you going. That's Chris Calcino with some additional reporting from Elizabeth Cramsey. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 20 to 1. Now, I want you to think about what a world champion Marlon Fisher would look like. Bearing in mind, that these massive fish can clock up to 100 kilos, they thrash harder than a mosh pit, and the immediate image probably looks like some kind of big bloke, maybe he's got a beard, maybe that skin's very brown and leathery from all that time on the back of a boat. Well, I need to tell you that you're about to meet a world champion who busts every single one of those stereotypes. Hannah Dunley is a 19-year-old Cairns angler who's just come home after being named the female champion at the International Billfish Tournament that was held in Hawaii. Here's her catching up with Adam Stephen.
5: Well, my dad got pretty keen on it and um, wouldn't let me come, so of course the obvious thing to do is beg him until he'll take you.
16: And you eventually convinced him.
5: Yep, <laughs> about 12 years old. 12 years old, so you've been doing this fish. for a few
16: years now. Yeah. <laughs> what tournament were you competing in over in Hawaii?
5: Um, so it was the Hawaiian International Billfishing Tournament, so pretty prestigious event. It's actually the only one in the island that isn't paid. So everyone going over, you're not going over for a bunch of money, you're going over because you really like it and you really want to win.
16: And the species of marlin that you target in that one, what were you chasing?
5: Uh, we were chasing the Pacific Blues.
16: Have you ever fished for those before?
5: No, no, only blacks over here, so I've got a couple of blacks on my belt, but it was great to get some more blues under there.
16: And are the Pacific blues any more difficult to catch or different to the black marlins you're used to catching off the coast of Queensland?
5: Yeah, honestly, easier, actually. They're a lot more docile, so you get them up next to the boat and they're not trying to kill you as such. They're just kind of chilling there, so, yeah, it definitely wasn't easy, but...
16: Marlin fishing does look like one of the more gruelling experiences on Earth. How tough is it to land one of these enormous fish?
5: It's pretty hard. (laughs) Nah, it's good when you have a good crew next year to give you a bit of feedback and a bit of a hand to, you know, talk in your ear. Keep going. Don't cry. And yeah, wind harder. (laughs) Some
16: of the fish that you were reeling in are at least twice your weight. How is it even possible to bring them in unassisted?
5: A lot of willpower. In Cairns, we don't have the most flash boat. You know, I sit on the esky, chuck my legs up against the gunnel and won for my life. But over in Hawaii, it was a bit of a luxury. We got to go on the nicest boats in the island. So all the game chairs, all the fancy stuff. But, yeah, none, nothing too much different, but, yeah.
16: You're sitting on an esky, having to just hold on for dear life while you trying yeah. to reel in a black marlin in Cairns. It probably put you in... Well, it might have given you a bit of a competitive advantage against the other women you were up against in this tournament. Now, you're 19 years of age, but it was an open age category what was it like to take it out
5: oh it was pretty cool I actually wasn't even expecting it to be honest um competing against quite a few other Aussie ladies from down south um ladies from Japan ladies from America so yeah it was pretty cool
16: were you one of the younger competitors
5: yeah that was the second youngest there so pretty pretty cool
16: And you're a world champion now, um in this one particular tournament. But for your day job you actually spend a lot of time on the water, not necessarily chasing billfish, but you've always been on the water. Yeah. Will you ever get sick of marlin fishing, do you reckon?
5: Um, probably not. No. It's it's always a good thrill to, you know, just be sitting there just staring off in the distance and then the rod starts screaming. So yeah, what's pretty the, exciting. What's
16: the biggest blue and black mar- marlin now that you've caught?
5: Um, the biggest black was probably about a hundred kilos, so that's that was pretty decent. Um, but the biggest blue, it was quite small, it was only about 180 pounds. So only only 80 180 kilos. So, yeah. <laughs> 80 kilos.
16: So, but there are marlin that are much bigger than 100 kilos. What would yeah. be like the, the one that you're always going out with your mindset on when you head out to go marlin fishing that you want to catch?
5: Oh, you always chase the grander, of course, you know. We've had some pretty good encounters up in Cooktown, you know cruising around and you know we've seen a few big ones but yeah haven't had to land one yet
16: when you say you've seen them as in in the water
5: yeah yep had them on the end of the rod, and then they just pop straight off so
16: (laughs) what do they look like those huge ones
5: they always look bigger you know from afar but you get it up close and you're like oh my god this is this is a real thing
16: (laughs) are there many other young women or girls involved in bill fishing
5: yeah there's a couple of other girls in Cairns. um Not many, I can't say. I mean, yeah, a lot of the comps I've been in, I've been either the only female or the only, you know, female girl, young girl. Um, But, yeah, no, I don't find it too intimidating, like... It's anyone's game. It's kind of like whoever the fish wants to jump on their rod.
16: Do you think it's an area where we'll see more you know, girls and women getting involved?
5: Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, even in Hawaii, that was, the first, that was the most women they've had ever in the comp of 61 years of running. So it's definitely picking up speed, which is super exciting. I'd love to see girls getting out there too.
16: So you're a world champion now. Um, are there other tournaments where you'll have to like, try and, you know, I guess either retain your title or test yourself <laughs> against other competition?
5: Um, not not particularly lined up just yet. Hopefully I'd
1: like to go back to Hawaii and do it again next year. Um, but, yeah, open to options. Can's angler Hannah Dunley, she's the little fish catching some big fish and is the female champion at the Hawaiian International Billfish Tournament. She was speaking with Adam Stephen. It's a quarter to one.
0: The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio
15: Queensland.
1: Have you had a look at Pongamia trees? Apparently they have the potential to be Northern Australia's most profitable crop. They're native to Australia, they're commonly found in the suburbs of places like Brisbane and the seeds of the tree are rich and in oil. Peter Wiley is from AgriPath and he's helping Matt Brand learn a bit more about them and explains why he thinks it should be grown commercially.
2: Well, pongamia is an oil seed tree which um, can produce a, quite a high yield of seed, which has got forty percent of oil in it. And so, the main interest in pongamia is to produce oil for renewable fuels, so that we can produce uh, biodiesel or um, aviation fuel, which is uh, comes from bio source. But as well as that, there there are quite a few other products come out of the process of growing the oilseed tree, Pongamia, and um, the first of which is the high-protein meal, which is of particular interest in the cattle industry in Northern Territory. Feeding high-protein meal in the late winter, for instance, can reduce the methane output of um, cattle as well as um, improve the production. So we, we now see Pongamia in a very profitable situation with quite high prices for renewable fuels, quite good prices for carbon, carbon offsets, which it produces a lot of, and um, there is money that comes into the producer from uh, the high-protein meal and the pods which separate separated from the seed in the process.
9: You believe it could be one of the more profitable crops to be grown in northern Australia, yeah?
2: Yes, certainly at the target yield that we've sort of envisaged of a, about nine tonnes per hectare, there is a um, very profitable return of uh, something like $6,000 a hectare uh, from the production of um, Pongamia. And partly it's quite good because the costs of growing it once it's established are are fairly low. You don't have to plant it every year. It's a legume. It it produces its own nitrogen. So the the main costs are just weed control and harvesting.
9: Are there any commercial plantations in Australia right now?
2: No, there's no commercial plantings uh, being managed at the moment. The biggest plantation is in Paraguay, uh, where a Dutch company is um, planting trees to get up towards 50 million in the next few years. 50 million trees? 50 million trees.
9: There's been trials in Australia over the years. Why don't you think it's made that leap into commercialisation.
2: The, yes, there have been trials and we visited uh, quite a lot of trials in our studies over the last uh, couple of years. Um, we learned a lot from those uh, trials on Pongamia. But its um, main issue, I think, is a, it's new, it's different, it's, it's out there. The idea of um, a broadacre, acre oilseed crop coming from a tree, it's a, it is... Even though growing it's reasonably simple, it's... Because the, is
9: it is it native to Australia? It is. It is, yeah.
2: Yes. So the, there are quite a few different um, lines of um, pongamia found in the wild in northern Australia. But the, it is found across uh, Southeast Asia and particularly in India, where they've used pongamia um, oil in India to um, run little engines for... Villages to pump water and generate a bit of electricity. They've used the pongami all there for many years.
9: Now, I assume not every tree is the same. Can you tell us about some of the work going on to be able to clone certain lines so that if you were to commercialise it, you could hopefully end up with lines of trees that uh, produce as much mm. tonnage as possible?
2: Yes, well that's, that's the key to success uh, with Pongamia, is to find the elite trees, the high yielding trees and then to clone them and um, it's only in the last few years that they've uh, developed uh, commercially um, uh, viable methods of cloning them and so we, we now have that um, process um, largely under control, We think, so that we can produce millions of trees in Australia. and. Um, it's a company, Bioenergy Plantations Australia, that's producing new lines of um, Pongamia. Right. At um, north of Brisbane. And um, they're currently gearing up to produce millions of trees here in Queensland.
9: For what end? Is there is there a company getting ready to grab hold of them? And,
2: and There are several companies that have, sh- have shown interest in Pongamia and they're doing the um, background um, research and uh, business studies to um, get to the point of um, decision-making on, on new projects, but um, right. a, a couple of those companies are almost there.
9: So in the next five years, for example, what would you hope to see, Peter?
2: In the next five years, I, I would ex- hope and expect to see uh, f- uh, five or more uh, quite large projects in Queensland and the North and Northern Territory or Northern, or Northern Western Australia those projects will will probably start in the next few years.
9: And are the markets ready? For example, if I went and harvested a bunch of Pongomia trees this afternoon, what do I do with it? Where do I sell it?
2: Well, it needs a processing plant, and that's why um, in our studies we used a project of 5,000 hectares or more to justify building a processing plant. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, to end up with the feedstock full biodiesel there are, incidentally, several biodiesel plants in Australia, including one in Darwin, that um, is, um, are not active. They're in mothballs. So um, I believe there's, there's a demand for biodiesel if it, if it can be put on the market in Australia uh, profitably. But uh, at the present time, uh, much higher prices are likely to be obtained by selling the oil to Europe. And um, where they... Uh, producing a lot of biofuel.
9: And just quickly on the mention of Darwin, you're liaising with the gas company Impex. Are you able to tell us a little bit about that?
2: The gas company Impex, is one of the companies that is doing um, uh, due diligence work um, to um, confirm that they uh, want to invest in the Pongamia uh, tree. So they're, in, they're investigating the potential yields and uh, any management problems with it.
9: Right. Because it's a company in the energy space. Yes. So its interest is in the biofuels, I assume.
2: Yes, they're interested in energy, they're interested in offsets, and they're, and they're here in in Australia.
9: I've enjoyed learning about Pongomia. Thanks so much for your time, Peter. Thank you.
1: Peter Wiley is from the company AgriPath. He was speaking to Matt Bran, and who knows? Over the next few years, we might be talking a lot more about pongamia in Queensland. It's seven minutes to one. This is the Queensland Country Hour.
12: Boo-boo! I think it's time I introduce myself to that picnic basket.
7: You know, Yogi.
1: Yeah, Yeah, you know, Yogi. It is time to get some introductions. The drama on Brooks River is high. From 80, 12 bears have been chosen. And today, well, technically tomorrow, Australia time four bears will compete in the first bracket of Fat Bear Week. Now fresh off his win in the junior competition, ranger Felicia Jimenez introduces Bear 806. He's known as junior and he's up in the first bracket.
7: He is a spring cub. He is the biggest cub voted by the public on the river right now. He's massive and fluffy and has the advantages of being a single cub in his litter, um, which is what, you know, contributed to his massive tank uh, size. Um, (laughs) He's also had some challenges throughout the season. He has tried to stay close to mom all season, and if you've been watching on the cams, you've seen him swept away, you know, off of the falls. He had a run-in with a male, and mom put the male in his place, Um, and he has just been getting so fat he has a huge transformation and as the winner of the fat bear junior competition he gets to go up against the big boys in the adult bracket so cheer on your favorite chunky cub and um, let's see what he'll show us
1: now up against junior in that first bracket is bear 428 she's introduced by mike fitz
0: 428 is a, a pudgy 3.5 year old subadult bear she has blonde ears and grizzled light brown fur Uh, and uh, she's the offspring also of number one two eight grazer which is uh, a bear with a perennial presence at Brooks River as a dominant mother bear grazer provided her cubs with consistent access to productive fishing spots at Brooks Falls so as a yearling and a two and a half year old cub four to eight followed her mother's lead she took to the lip of the Falls to practice fishing in a location that younger bears Are often displaced from by larger bears she had a bit of a head start in those locations but after grazer separated from 428 and 428's sister earlier this year suddenly the former cubs didn't have a guide or protector 428 had to utilize the lessons she learned from mother while forging her own path and facing difficulties of uh, of life at the bottom of the hierarchy. This summer, though, she navigated the new challenges brought by a life of independence. She utilised opportunity as it came, even if opportunity for her came in consistently.
1: 428, she's making her way in the world. That's the Cubs in the first bracket. Now, in the second bracket that will be decided tomorrow are two very interesting bears with two very different stories. Here's Mike Fitz introducing Bear 402.
0: She is a large adult female with medium brown fur and tan colored claws. Her 2023 before and after photos tell a a story of an experienced older mother bear. Really, if there's one single word I can use to describe 402, it is experience. She is the mother of at least eight litters, more than any other bear currently at Brooks River. This includes two litters of four cubs apiece, This year, as you see in these clips, she's returned to the river with a single yearling cub. 402, she's a skilled angler. She can fish successfully in many locations. Her fishing experience is especially valuable during years when she has cubs and when salmon are not particularly abundant, which we saw at times in early summer at Brooks River this year. For the last few weeks, 402 and her yearling have been a frequent presence near the river mouth. This is a place she knows well, and she sets her cubs up with success by demonstrating how to make a living here. As 402 enters her late 20s, she's demonstrated again and again how to provide for the welfare of her cubs in a challenging and competitive environment.
1: Now, 402 is gonna be putting her experience up against Young Mother Bear 901, who Felicia Jimenez says has experienced her own challenges this season.
7: She has two cubs, she, has experienced some hardship this year. She originally arrived in early summer with three spring cubs. um, And then later on, um, you know, earlier, later on in the summer, um, she ended up, the third one disappeared. Um, We haven't seen that cub since, and since now she has two cubs. Um, So her story is going to show the challenges that new mothers face. Last year was her First time in Fat Bear Week and she is making a return this year. Um, and you'll get to see the transformation that she's made from early summer, um, having to support three spring cubs to now. Um, so it's a really, really good juxtaposition and I love this bear a lot.
1: <laughs> That's your first bracket. For more you can see them online if you head to fatbearweek.org. Well you
2: know boo I'm smarter than the average bear.
1: <laughs> to the markets we've got no grey smear because of brahmin week and no charters towers due to low numbers so let's head to dolby with trevor hess
12: Good afternoon. The number of cattle penned at Dolby today reduced by 1,422 head to 2,767. A number of export processes were absent from the buying panel and also there was a reduced number of feeder operators in attendance. Most classes at the time of central report have sold to a cheaper market. Heavyweight yielding steers to feed, averaged 18 less heavyweight yielding hips to feed, lost up to 40. All classes of cows sold to a cheaper market with losses of 7 to 10 cents.
1: That's the country hour for you today. Thank you, Trevor. Remember to tune in from a quarter past six tomorrow for your rural report. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company. It's
3: one o'clock.